0: In John 13 this morning, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 15 verses. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but I think it'll be profit, profitable for us to, to read the whole thing. And we're going to look at these verses this morning, Lord willing. John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then, he, then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Simon said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed, needeth not not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garment and was set down again, he said unto them, know you what I have done unto you? Ye call me master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your master, your Lord and master have washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. leave off reading there in verse 15. I'm going to begin this morning's message with a little bit of a study rather than kind of an exhortation, so bear with me this morning. This text opens up with the words, now before the feast of Passover, and then verse 2 says, and the supper being ended. The Greek behind the word being is being in the process of, being, of coming to an end. And so, verse 1 opens up with a feast of the Passover, verse 2 with the supper. So here's the question, and you know in my preaching, sometimes I'll ask a question, and I do that for us to start thinking through this whole process. Here's the question. What supper is being referred to in this text? Because it's critical as far as the rest of the explanation of the text is concerned. Let me first say that many of the commentators agree that trying to compare Scripture with Scripture on this particular issue, the supper and the feast, is very difficult. Some of the brightest men that you'll read will say, there are some things hard to be understood here. Okay? Okay. In some places, it looks like these events take place either at the Passover or at the supper that followed the Passover. And so, how do you make the distinction? So first, let me say it's not my intention to enter into a divisive debate over this issue, only to let you know that after looking at the scriptures, I am settled at the supper mentioned in John 13, is the same supper, or is not the Passover, nor the supper that followed the Passover. Instead, it is the supper mentioned in John 12, as we'll come in just a minute. The commentaries are also all over the place regarding this supper. Not only do they say that comparing Scripture with Scripture is difficult, but when you read what they say, this man says this, and this man says that, and so... Good, solid men are not necessarily all in agreement on this. And I bring that up because I want you to study. And when you go to some commentary and say, well, well, this man says this and, and this man says that, what am I supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe the scriptures, okay? We're supposed to believe the scriptures alone. And I bring this up from time to time to challenge us as a people to think outside the commentaries, okay? And focus upon the scriptures. Some of them believe that it actually refers to the Passover. Some of them believe that it refers to the supper that followed the Passover. The Passover was much like our Lord's table. It is a short time that the Jews gathered together. They ate a quick meal together. And then later in the evening, they had an extended supper. And so, they're all over the place. But I want to draw your attention to the text, okay? And then we're going to come from here and begin to look in the context of where this is found. First, verse 1 opens up, now before the feast of the Passover, verse 2, and supper being ended. Before the Passover and supper being ended. And so the The supper and the Passover, if it's before the Passover and supper is ended, uh, it's a different kind of a supper, right? Are you following me here? Before the Passover and supper being finished. So we go back to John chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and we read these words. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. Where Lazarus was, which he had been raised, uh, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. I'm going to say to you this morning that it is my contention that this supper in John chapter 13 is the continuation of that supper that began in John chapter 12, and it completely eliminates the idea of Passover. Before the feast of Passover, John says in verse 13. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is this. When once Passover is mentioned in John 13 verse 1, it is not mentioned again in this text, except in verse 29, which we'll come to in just a minute. It's not mentioned again. And in fact, doesn't show up until much later. The word supper in this text is distinguished from the phrase, the feast. In fact, throughout the Gospels, you'll hear the Passover called the feast, but not the supper. And there's a distinction made in Scripture between Passover feast and supper. In our day, we would say we had the Lord's table, And then we ate supper together. Okay? And so that's an important point here. The word supper then distinguished from the word feast. So, but there's a third point. First point is before the feast of Passover, verse 1. Second point, a distinction between the word supper and the word feast. Third point, it is at this supper... That the devil enters Judas. According to Luke, this event took place before the Passover. This is how you study the scripture. So I want you to go now with me to Luke chapter 22. Go back and let's read Luke 22. Now remember, every detail given to us is also given in other portions of scripture. We need to search it out. In Luke 22, we'll begin in verse 1. Luke 22, verse 1. Luke 22, 1 opens up. Now the feast, there it is, of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. The feast drew nigh. It was coming, which is called a Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Verse 3, then... Entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And when he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted, he covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. You see that? The day of unleavened bread was coming. Judas is entered, Satan enters Judas. He betrays Jesus to the high priest. Then came the day of unleavened bread. You see that? Matthew says this took place two days before the Passover. Go to Matthew 26. This is comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is laying aside for a minute the commentaries and going straight to the Word of God and comparing Scripture with Scripture. Matthew 26, verse 2. And you know that after two days is the Feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... Where does that take place? John 12, remember? Two days. So, let me give you a summary here. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus leaves the wilderness and comes to Bethany. Two days before the Passover, they have a supper in, in Lazarus' house. Two days before the Passover. That's the setting here. They have a supper. Now, so Matthew records... Two days before the Passover, verse 6, they're having a supper at in Bethany. And then in verse 14 of Matthew 26, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest. During this supper, he got up and went to the chief priest. Go back to John's Gospel. That's a lot of information to keep track of what I do is I write it all down on a piece of paper and juggle it around when I need to. But I'm just encouraging you to search things out more thoroughly than just simply to read and believe something that is said in a commentary. The fourth point I want to make on this. First is a distinction is made between the Passover and the supper. Okay, Before Passover they were having a supper. Secondly between the word feast and Passover. Thirdly The context here has to do with uh, um, Judas having the devil enter into him. Fourth, brings us to John 13 29. I mentioned that a while ago. The fourth point I want to make is that the disciples thought Judas departed because Judas had the bag and that Jesus had told him to go make some preparations for the feast. Read John 13 and verse 29. John 13, 29. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast. What feast? That's a reference to the Passover. They're having a supper together. Judas gets up. He gets up to go betray Christ to the chief priest. He leaves, and the disciples that are left think, well... Christ sent him to go buy stuff for the feast, for the Passover. This tells us that this is not the Passover feast. That is still to come. Okay? That's fourth point. Fifth point. John 14 and verse 31, keeping everything in its context. John 14 and verse 31, the last words, Arise, let us go hence. All of John chapter 13 and all of John chapter 14 is Jesus Christ instructing his disciples at this supper. At the end of John 14, he says, let us get up and go. Now, if I'm correct on this, and I believe I am, the Lord gave instructions at the end of this supper at Bethany to get up and go to Jerusalem. Now, what's going to happen when they leave Bethany? It's two days before the Passover he enters into the city, and the city is rejoicing. They're putting down palm leaves. Hallelujah to the Lord. And they're praising Him as He enters in. He goes to the temple and cleanses it. And then He celebrates the Passover with His disciples. And then He goes to Gethsemane. Chapter 15, 16, and 17 is a dialogue between the Lord Jesus Christ and His disciples with chapter 17 being a prayer and chapter 18 opens up with these words chapter 18 opens up with these words when Jesus had spoken these words those words from 15 and 16 and 17 he went forth with his disciples over the book kidron where was a garden which into which he entered with his disciples this takes place after the passover they sang this the the hymn and they left that night and went into the garden of eden now look in verse 2 182 john 182 and judas also which betrayed him knew the place this is the next mention of judas after he leaves the disciples in acts 13 Arise, let us go hence. We're leaving Bethany. We're going to Jerusalem. It's two days to the Passover before he dies the next morning. And Judas knows the place is the next instruction we're given. Back to Acts 13, or John 13. Why do you spend so much time on this, Brother Pat? Why is that critical? Because every word of God is profitable. Because there's nothing in the word of God that's not important. And though we may not understand it all, yet it is our responsibility as Christians to study and study and study and to search and see if we can find out what is God saying here so that we can have in our minds and in our hearts all that is going on. And so I took this time out this morning, sort of a lesson before the preaching to show you how If I were studying something, I'd read the commentaries. Well, first I'm going to try to find it in the context. Then I'd read the commentaries. If they're confused, I'm going to go back to the scriptures. And I'm going to search because I want to know what God has to say about it. And I want you to to develop that same habit. There are some good men that we can learn from. Good men that have been preaching and teaching for hundreds of years. Their writings have remained with us. And we treasure those. We stand on the shoulders of men who have made a mark in Christianity in the world. But they are not infallible. Only the word of God is. And we need to trust what God says about things. The next thing we read here is that the supper being ended and the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here we come now to the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas that he should betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Lord Jesus Christ knows this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ knows what's going on. There are other people at the this, at this supper. There are the disciples there who think when Judas leaves, he's going to go buy something for the Passover. Martha is there serving. Lazarus has been raised. There are a multitude of Jews there. Nobody knows what's going on. What's going on is silent. What's going on is spiritual. You can't see it with your eyes. But Satan is in the middle of it. And he chooses out Judas. And he puts something into Judas's heart. And yet our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, being God, knowing all things, knows that Judas is not a true disciple. He has already said that in John 6, verse 70 and 71, where he says, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? And verse 71 says, He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. In chapter 13 and verse 27 of John, we see that Jesus gave Judas the sop. Now, this follows the dialogue that says, the one of you is going to betray me. And the, who is it, Lord? Who is it? And he said, the one I give this sop to, this piece of bread dipped into, into the juices of whatever they were eating. And he gave it to Judas. And Judas rises at that moment and leaves the table to go and betray him to the high priest. But what I want you to see is I want you to notice the progression of satanic activity in some people who are lost. Luke or John tells us that he put something into Judas's heart. Put into, he like he would toss something into the ring or he would pour something into a bowl. That's what's behind the idea of putting it into. The heart is there and Satan with Judas Has the ability to put something in his heart. Has the ability to interject something into him. That that thing put into the heart begins to fill the heart. Look in Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Go with me over there because I want you to see the wording here. How it's different. And then we'll come back to John 13. That which has been put into the heart by Satan begins to fill the heart. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart or thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Now here the word filled is not something that's been dropped into it so that there are other things that occupy. The heart is full of things and Satan comes along and drops something there in the midst of all of it. But in this, it is filled. And the word here means completely filled. In other words, every other thing that was in the heart has been pushed aside and pushed away until this one thing has taken control. This one thing has filled my soul, filled my heart. Coming back to John chapter 13, and we look in verse 27. John 13 and verse 27 here the scriptures record, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest doest quickly. After he received that piece of bread dipped into whatever they were eating, Satan entered into Judas. That which had been put into him as one of many things began to fill the heart so that it was taking control. And now Satan himself is able to enter into Judas and take control over Judas. This is what we call demon possession. And we ought not to fear this in, in this sense. It's in the scriptures. We ought to understand it. We ought to understand it. Satan doesn't come in to every person. Demons don't just come in to just anybody just... Oh, I want to pick this one and go today. No. What happens first? First something was in the heart that began to be entertained that was contrary to God. Then it began to fill the heart and the life began to be pursuing that. And then the person given over to that which contrary to God, given themselves over, opens up themselves to demonic possession. And that's why I have said over the years That this kind of thing should be a warning to all who are lost. Be careful what you allow to enter into your heart. It starts there. It starts with entering in. But it doesn't end there. It can end in the utter destruction of your soul. Be careful what you allow to enter into your heart. That's how it began with Judas. He put something there in the middle of all the rest of it. And by the verse 27, he's able to enter in himself. This is a warning for us. Judas is not a believer. This cannot happen to believers. Now, we can be, we can be persecuted. We can be, we can be hindered. We can be uh, thwarted on all kinds of things by the evil one. But we cannot be in, possessed. But this can happen to people who are lost. By the way, just as a side note, the Greek word for uh, spiritual possession is pharmakia. What is that? Pharmakia. What is that? Drugs. Now, drugs open you up so that you're out of control and then something comes in to take control. Be careful Children, I've warned you, don't go down this pathway that leads to this. It does not end well for many, many people. It does not end well. Satan puts something into his heart. Jesus knowing, verse 3 says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and, and that he was come from God and went to God. I don't have a clock, so I'm trying to keep track of time, or maybe I shouldn't. He rises from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wiped them with a towel wherewith he was girded himself. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and going to God. Jesus knowing Now listen, what this means is this. He is absolutely fully aware that his father had given all things into his hands. That he'd come from the father and he was going back to the father. He is absolutely aware that he is in absolute control of all the events and all the results of the purposes of God being fulfilled in the next few days. All things were given into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean to us? All things relating to the revelation of the Father, to God, given into the hands of Jesus Christ. You cannot come to know the one true and living God outside of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot know God on the basis of reading what somebody else says about Him. You cannot know God on the basis of a picture or a statue. You cannot know God on the basis of your imagination of who He is. You can only know God as Jesus Christ reveals Him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And as you read the Scriptures and you see what Jesus Christ says, in, in the, you see Him saying in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 11 and verse 27, "...all things are delivered unto me and my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father..." save the Son, and he to whomsoever he will reveal him. What does that mean? It means that if we're going to know God, Jesus Christ is going to have to show him to us. If we're going to know the true and living God, we're going to have to learn of him through Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. When the Lord saves us, he begins teaching us. We don't Begin with a full knowledge of God. We begin with a little bit of knowledge. But then we begin to grow as the Lord reveals more and more and more of who the Father is. Everything relating to salvation is getting into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17 and verse 2. We'll come to it in a few months. Thou hast given him power over all fests. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. John 17 verse 2. God has given Jesus power to give salvation. The authority, the right to give salvation is in the hands of Jesus Christ. All things relating to redemption is in the hand of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has died. He is the one who who paid the penalty. He is the one who died in the place of sinners. He is the one that was buried and rose again after three days. He is the one that has the authority to save those he died for. He's ascended and took his place upon the throne of heaven. And he prays for them as the great high priest. He is the one that has the authority to pray that God would save these that he has died for. Everything related to the salvation of a sinner in the hand of Jesus Christ. It is not in my hand. It is not in the hands of a priest. It is not in the hand of a denomination. It is not in the hands of a book. It is not in the hand of a pope or any other person. It is in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has it. Forgiveness comes from him. Being preserved by the Lord unto the end. The grace and mercy comes through him. He is the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. Protection from sin and Satan and the destruction in this world. He is the shield. Justification. He is the one that makes us righteous. And then declares because we are righteous, we are justified before God. All of it. Sanctification. Glorification. Everything we need to leave this earth, to go to be in heaven with our Father. Everything that we need is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. No wonder Paul says that he should have the preeminence. But not only everything relating to revelation, we can't know the Word of God unless the Lord Jesus Christ opens it. We cannot know the Father unless the Lord Jesus Christ reveals him. We cannot have salvation unless the Lord Jesus Christ bestows it upon us. but also everything relating to the final judgment is in His hands. John 5: 22. John 5:22 says, "For the Father judgeth no man." He has put. He has put or he has committed all judgment, all of it, onto the Son. What about the judgment of the angels that have fallen and Satan? What about the judgment of the nations? What about those who refuse and will not repent and come to Christ? What about all judgment is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? He will mete it out in a righteous way in the last day. With all things given to Him. Fully aware of what was before Him. His death is only a day or two away. His burial is coming and then His resurrection three days after that. And His ascension into glory. To take His place on His throne. Promised to Him by His Father. All of these things are before Him. It's just unfolding. And He knows it's coming to pass. With all of that in His mind. All these things given unto Him. He rises from the table, takes off his outer garment, lays it aside, picks up a towel, wraps the towel around his waist with that long piece hanging down, pours some water in a basin, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is amazing. This is amazing what's going on here. And it is so full of truth. First, it's important for us to understand what is going on in the background here. They're sitting around the table. They're eating. Lazarus is there. They're fellowshipping. Judas has has just left. And the eleven, according to Luke, are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And there was also strife among them. Which of them should be counted the greatest? Luke twenty, two twenty four, 24. And then we drop down to verse 27, where our Lord says, For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as one that serveth. Now this is what's taking place at that table, while they're eating. And Christ gets up lays his cloak aside, wraps himself with that towel, pours that water into a bowl, and begins to wash their feet. They're arguing as to who is greatest, and he says to them publicly, I'm among you as one who is serving. And we come to these words, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, And if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. There are two things that the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter in this text. The first one is this, Peter, you don't know right now what I'm doing. What I do thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. But Peter knew that he was washing the disciples' feet. I mean, you got eyes, you can see, right? He knew he was washing his feet and the other disciples, but he did not know the purpose of it. That was going to be revealed in a, for us in a few more <laughs> verses. Our Lord says, though you don't understand now, yet after some time, you will begin to learn. The Greek construction is you have a beginning and it continues. You will begin to learn and continue to learn what I am doing right now. How often this applies to us as Christians. How often would the words of the Lord Jesus Christ Could the words of the Lord Jesus Christ be spoken to us? What I do right now, you don't understand. For me, on a daily basis almost, when I'm reading the Scriptures, there's some things I still don't understand. As I see life opening up in front of me, there's some things I don't understand. How often could these words apply to us today? What I do right now, because He's involved in everything, in every day of our life, what I do right now, you, you don't understand. Children, keep that in mind. There's some things you may not understand. And same with us adults. There's some things we may not understand. Peter said, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Peter responded in rejecting the Lord's desire to wash his feet. But why? Why did Peter respond this way? Now, the text doesn't tell us plainly, but I think we can look into the text and get something. What's going on here? The disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. And the greatest among them, God, in the flesh, gets up from the table and girds himself like a servant and begins to wash their feet and Peter says wait 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 no i think that's what's going on here i i think pro, pro, what's happening is peter probably could not submit to the fact that his master should serve him as a servant as a we don't have him in our house but in Mexico and in India where I've served, they have servants. They they stand in the corner and they wait for you to tell them what to do. They have them in every household, almost every household. Brethren, remember that they're arguing over who's the greatest. Now their Lord is serving them like a servant. Remember also that our Lord had already spoken these words to them back in Mark chapter 10. Where he had said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to be a servant, and to give his life a ransom for many. Our text does not reveal all that is going on in Peter's heart. But one thing we can be sure of, that Peter understood the Lord's rebuke. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. No part with me. What is our Lord saying when he said that to Peter? Peter's a believer. What is our Lord saying here? He is saying, Peter, if you are a true disciple, if you're a true believer, then first you will submit to your Lord in things you may not understand. That's a hard thing, submitting to providence. We see things developing and they don't look good to us. They don't look right. Why am I sick? Why is this? Why is that? And yet we know that God is in the midst of it. We believe, at least theologically, that everything is coming out of the hand of our God. And we say, like Peter, no, you're not going to do this to me. And the first thing our Lord says, yes, I will. Otherwise, you're not with me. And so the first thing here is that You will submit to your Lord in things you may not understand. And that's hard, brethren. I understand that. And that's why he said what you see going on now you don't understand, but you will begin and continue to understand as the future develops. We don't learn it all in one day. We don't learn it all with one message. We don't learn it all just because we had this experience this day. And for the next 20, 30, 40 years of our life, we got to handle on this thing. We don't. That's not how Christianity works out. We forget and have to be reminded. And we learn slowly as things develop before us. And so here's the first point. Peter, if you are a true disciple, you will submit to your Lord in things you don't understand right now. You don't understand what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing. But secondly... You will trust your Lord in the things you don't understand. You'll trust that what I'm doing is the right thing. Everything he did was righteous. Everything he did was a work given to him by his father. This is no different. He rises from the table, girds himself like a servant, and he's washing their feet. Is this some anomaly? Is this some um, um, strange reaction? No, this is the will of God being developed and, and revealed right before them. As the righteous God, who is their master, becomes their servant. They're to trust him in that. You will trust your Lord in things you don't understand. And thirdly, you will trust your Lord to teach you the things you don't understand today will become more and more clear as they open up in the future. What I do now, you do not know. But, henceforth, you will begin to understand. I paraphrased paraphrased it. You will have no part with me. If you are with me, Peter, if you are my disciple, if you are my follower, you will learn to trust me, even in this. And it seems so awkward. And yet, I, don't, I, I got rid of the text because my message was too long, but let me just interject this. Yet in the book of Luke, it records that in heaven, Jesus will gird himself and serve us at the table. I'll throw that out for you to search it out for yourself. Verse 9, Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only. (laughs) So typical of Peter, but also my hands and my head. Uh, Man full of zeal, once he understands a little bit. Jesus said on them, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Peter immediately understood that the Lord meant that if he did not submit to being washed, then he was not a true disciple. And so, and Peter's a true disciple. And so Peter says, in typical Peter fashion, Okay, I'm true. I want you. I'm the one that said, where are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And so I don't want you to wash my feet. I want you to wash my hands and my face. I want you to wash this. I want you to wash me. Peter is saying, I don't want to be separated from you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I, and if washing my feet means that I'm with you, then, then wash my hands and my face too, and my head too. And this is zeal without knowledge. Didn't our Lord just tell him what I'm doing you don't know? And Peter comes back with this whole zealous expression. Well, what can we learn from this? Because in everything, there's something to learn. First, and there's three things I want to bring out. Christians need to be careful about adding to the Word of God to fulfill their desire for a greater closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You get what I just said? Christians want to be close to Christ. And, they, and they, they learn the things they don't know, but they want to be close to Him. They don't want to be separated from Him. And that ebbs and flows over the days and weeks and months and years. But that's the general tenor of their life. I want to be with Christ. I want to walk with Him. Enoch walked with God. That's what I want. So how do I get closer to God? Well, maybe if it's not just my feet, He could wash my hands and my head too. What did He just do, brother? He just added to the Word of God. Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. That was the Word of God. That's the Word that came out of the mouth of God. He just added something. Well, if that will do it, then I want this too. But where is that found in the Scriptures? Be careful about adding things to the Scriptures because of your desire to be closer to Christ, this will get me closer. Chapter and verse. Second thing, Christians need to be careful about seeking external experiences that are not part of the plan of God for their life. What is the plan of God for Peter? That his feet be washed. What is Peter's idea of God's plan? That my feet and my hands and my head be washed. Be careful that we're not looking for an experience that is outside of God's plan for my life, for our life. Third, Christians need to be careful about asking God for things He does not promise to provide. What has God said He was going to do? God said, I'm going to wash your feet. Well, I think I'm going to ask for my hands and my face too, and my head too. Hmm. God didn't say anything about that. You see the danger of this? You see that zeal without knowledge sometimes leads us astray. Peter's so full of zeal. I am with you. I don't want to be separated from you. And if washing my feet means that I'm going to be part of you, then do my hands and my head too. Christ hadn't said a thing about that. He hadn't said a thing about it. But this is Peter's zeal. Mount of transfiguration. Jesus Christ is there and there's Moses and there's Elijah. And Peter says, why don't we build three tabernacles? And the father speaks, right? No. This is my son. You hear him. They got the law and the prophets. It's not about them. They're talking about his death. But Peter's full of zeal. Let's build three tabernacles for these three. Let's 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 enjoy all three of them. No. We're going to focus on one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has Christ said in his word? I want to wash your feet. And so we hear him say in verse three, 10, Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed. I'm going to explain the Greek words as I go. He that is totally bathed, totally cleansed, that's the first wash, need not but to wash, different Greek word, to wash a certain portion like feet. Two English words that mean the same thing but behind them are Greek words that mean two different things. One is to be completely head to foot, cleansed totally. The other is to wash apart. You take a bath, the whole body is washed. You go out, you get dirty, you come in, what do you do? You wash your hands. Same word, but two different meanings. That's what's here. And then, need is not save to wash his feet, but is clean. That word, pure, every whit, and you are clean. Jesus Christ is saying, you have been cleansed, completely washed, Peter. You are pure. And I'm going to do that in my blood. Revelation 1 and verse 5 speaks of him who loved us and washed us from um, our sins in his own blood. Completely washed. One, not one sin standing before us and God. Every one of them removed. Washed away, taken out of the way completely cleansed, but we walk through this world, and our feet get dirty, and in Eastern nations, we didn't wear shoes like this, we wore sandals in India, and we walked through the dirty streets, and they take their sandals off outside when they would come into services, and when you would go in the house, the first thing they would do is wash your feet, and we saw this in real time in India. I remember going to a remote village. It took us a long time to get there. We had to cross this little stream. It was actually probably about 100 feet wide. It was, but it wasn't deep, maybe three or four inches deep. We washed through it. And Peter said, Peter, the man that was with it, said, get up to the water well and wash your feet, sir. There's a lot of danger in this river we just crossed, what they called a river. And so we had to rush up and wash our feet and legs real quick. That was the custom. Cross that river, you wash You walk through this world, you're going to get dirty. You wash your feet. That's what he's showing us here. That's one lesson. You're cleansed completely. A Christian has no sin to answer for. If I die this moment, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I stand before God washed pure in the blood of Christ. Past, present, future sins, all wrapped up and laid on Christ. There He died. There He paid for it. There He removed it forever. And in the eyes of God, I stand clean. But as I walk through this world, I get dirty. And so I need my feet washed. Now, that's the, the instructions. But that's not the primary interpretation of what Christ is doing. It's there. But the primary interpretation interpretation of what Christ is doing as we close out is verse 12 through 15. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garment and was set down again, they're eating supper. Supper is about to be ended, but or in the process of being ended, but it's not ended yet. He got up from supper, he washed their feet, he went back and he leaned back down, or they had a. They they had a, sat around a low table about this high, and they sat there on pillows and leaned down. They were eating like they ate with their hands, like they do in India. <laughs> From a table in the middle. He goes and he sits back down, and then he asks them this question: "Do you know what I've done to you?" And this is the cult, This is the culmination of it. This is the. This is the real purpose of all of it. You call me Lord and Master. And you say, well, for I, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, there's a a group of Baptist people that believe that in actually foot washing. I don't believe that is what is going on here. I don't believe that this is an ordinance. I believe this is instruction in humility and in being a servant. If I am your master and your Lord has done this for you. Remember the text in Luke where he says, Son of man came not to serve, but to to be served, but to serve. That's the text in this that we're dealing with. You call me Lord and master. You call me master and Lord. I am that. I am the Lord over all, and I am your teacher. The word master, teacher. I'm the one who teaches truth. I am that. You've come to know that after three years of ministry, of walking with me. You know who I am. i am come from the Father. I go back to Him. I am Lord over all. I am the teacher of truth. You know that. Earlier in John 6, He said, where are we going to go to get the words of everlasting life? Where are we going to go? Only you have that. They know and that's why it's so hard for Peter to knowing these things to let him do what he had just done. But in verse 14 he says you also ought. And then in verse 15 for I've given you an example. The Greek behind the English word ought is present tense active obligation. You have a present tense obligation to do exactly the same thing that I'm doing and it's continuing. So it's not every day, every moment of the day, I'm washing somebody's feet, okay? Because this obligation is upon me to be active involved in this on a daily basis, on a continuing basis. So what is it talking about? You ought to do the same thing your Lord and Master do. Gird yourself like a servant and serve others. This phrase ought... Is powerful. Listen to some of the scriptures that are related to Christ. If you want to write them down or just turn quickly. 1 John, we'll be in 1 we'll uh, John in three texts So if you want to go over there. 1 John 2, 6. 1 John 2, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought there it is. Same word. Ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Look at Jesus Christ. How did he walk? Not talking about the miracles. We're not talking about walking on sea. We're not talking about healing the dead. How did he walk? He walked as a servant. He walked in truth. John, 1 John three sixteen. The next chapter. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought. 1 John three sixteen. We ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Not talking about us dying so that others can live, though that may be that we may be called upon someday for that. But laying in our life so others may have life. Giving up our desires for this world so that we might help others come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay down my life so that I might serve others, so that they might know the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.11, the next chapter over. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, there it is again, also to love one another. Do you see how this is connected? Jesus Christ walked this way in the world. We ought to walk that way. Jesus Christ laid down His life. Now, His was literal... And his had to do with paying of sin. We can't do that. But we can lay down our life for the sake of others and serve them. Jesus Christ loved others. We ought to love others. There's no... no uh, we need to understand that from this we forgive. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as... God has forgiven you. Husbands in this room. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife. How? Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. These things, The teaching of the New Testament is Jesus Christ becomes our focus. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the one who has cleansed us. Now we learn to walk by Him. We learn how to live a Christian life by His example. We learn how to love people by looking at Him. We learn how to serve people by looking at His example. We learn how to forgive others by looking at His example. We learn how to to be a Christian by looking at Christ. And it is a, what you, what I do now, you don't understand. You don't know. But hereafter, you will begin and continue to understand. When God saved me, I didn't know anything about Christianity. What did I know about true Christianity? I don't know anything about that. I was raised in a false religion. What did I know about Christianity? And I began, step by step, day by day, week by week, month by month, I began. And I'm still continuing, trying to learn what it is to be a Christian. Because Christ is the sum and substance of it. And it's not this list. If I just do this, then I'm good to go. No. That goes out the window because here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's His Word. And I look at His life. That's why I've spent the last, what, three or four years, church, on dealing in the Gospels. Why? We're looking at the life of Christ. Why? Because that's the sum and substance of what we're supposed to be doing. We're not looking at Moses. We're not, we don't have a problem looking there, but we see Christ in it. We're not looking at Paul. We don't have a problem looking at in that, but we see Christ in it. And so Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in him. This is what we're to do, right? Philippians chapter 2. He who, who inhabited eternity, who, he who... Filled glory with his presence. Gave that up to come to earth. And humbled himself and became a man. And in that, became a servant. And in that, went to the cross. And let that mind be in you. He made a conscious decision that this is what I'm going to do. And so we look at his life and say it's a conscious decision. And it's day by day and every every day. This is what I need to do. And if we fail, we're cleansed, but we need to be washed. Our feet need to be washed. And we get our feet washed, and we get back up, and what do we do? Christ is before us again. This is the way that you should be walking. May God help us to grasp that as we go through this gospel and continue through this. Grasp that understanding. The New Testament is a focus. In fact, the Scriptures are focused upon one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. May He be our focus also. Let's pray together.